Well, you'll have to forgive us with our technical difficulties. You can see the slide presentation back there is a little is a little sketchy. We're going to figure out what's uh, what's going on with that and some other lighting that's uh, that, that's out. We don't know whether it's due to some of the the electrical stuff out there or it's just out. But I think you can see it uh, well enough. We'll get that fixed before uh, before next week and tonight. Uh, we'll introduce the, the book that we are going through. The picture of the, the cover is up there on your screen. It's called A Strange New World. At least that's the big title. There's a lot of words after that. Uh, how thinkers and activists redefined identity and sparked the sexual revolution. So we will be talking about those, those topics. And so... Um, I think most of the, the children are over there. Obviously, I'll be discreet, but uh, we will be covering some of, of those areas. We chose this because it's a practical follow-up from, uh, from our summer series. And it was also really helpful to our TCS teachers. Um, something that we did uh, for them, so we expanded it uh, actually into 10 sessions rather than, uh, rather than six or seven and it just dovetailed well with our applied anthropology that we're just finishing up, uh, which was um, uh, looking to the Bible for, for the foundational answers for life and, and otherwise. Uh, we did that to try to make sense out of a culture uh, gone mad. If you find yourself trying to wrap your head around what's going on and the way people think, uh, and, and it just doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever, you should praise God for that. <laughs> That's an evidence that, that what we're going to be talking about has not affected you, at least not down to your core. But you'll probably discover that there's some leakage. There's some things that have crept in there. You've, you've begun to breathe in some of the toxins. And if not you, uh, maybe your, your children, um, and uh, or your your nephews or or your coworkers or otherwise and this the what we did over the summer and what we're doing right now is to try to equip you to think rightly so we started with the bible first which is our only authority and the scripture is sufficient um and we talked about genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 which just lays out creation uh and then where all the problems came one uh, came from in Genesis chapter 3, which is the, the fall. I mean, we currently live outside of the garden. That, that's our existence. And no matter how much the church flourishes, no matter how much we preach the gospel, that is our state until the, the kingdom comes and then a new heaven and a new earth, until the Lord makes all things new. doesn't mean that we can't make things better in the sense of seeing people come to Christ and being in the midst of a church. But, but the, the, the ultimate hope is that this world is going to dissolve and melt in fervent heat and the Lord is going to create uh, a new one. And in between His first and second coming, He's left, up here, left us here to be His witnesses as He builds His, builds his church and, and be a clarion call to, to the culture and other people. Um, and as you stand in truth and as you proclaim what the scriptures say, as you live that out, the Bible says that there are only two responses. 
in both of those responses, while you might not like one of them, both of those responses you know, is, is an evidence that the gospel is at work. The one response is it wakes people up, it saves people, it, it, God uses it to convict them and convince them and draw them to Christ. And the other is they, they see that, they kick against that, and they harden. And then they manifest what they, they already are down, down in their hearts. That, that's really what the, the, that latter one is, is the, uh, the responsibility or the, the call that God gave to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. You know, that wonderful missions passage, Here am I, Lord, send me. Well, if you go in and read that a little bit, what the Lord sends him to do, he says, you're going to preach and they're not going to hear. Your preaching is actually going to harden them. So that that's, doesn't sound like a very pleasant missionary call. Everything I'm going to say, everything you're going to say, Isaiah, you're going to be faithful. You're going to be a faithful missionary, a faithful witness, a faithful prophet. And the result of your ministry is the hardness of people. And that's something that you have to come to grips with. There will be people you're witness to that will, will get saved. And there will other, there'll be other people that will do nothing but, but harden their own hearts, just like, just like Pharaoh we heard this morning. Outside of the garden, there's all manners of evil here. There's perverse sexuality, and there's also broken thinking, or what the Bible calls in Romans 1, a depraved mind, um, a reprobate mind. It's a, it's a mind that's been given over to bad thinking, and it no longer works. It doesn't have the ability to work. So that's something else to keep in mind. When you're when you're going over these kinds of things, what you're learning, if you go and try to teach this to somebody that, that doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them, they're not regenerated, they might not be able to grasp this or understand it. Apologetics has a purpose in the church, but it's not going to evangelize any, anybody. Without the Spirit of God igniting that truth, then, then there's, 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 there's no engine there. You can pour all the gasoline of the knowledge uh, and helping them think rationally that you want to, but there's no motor without this, the, the Spirit of God. And so y- y- they've been given over to, to unsound thinking, a mind that doesn't function properly. And you look around you and you go, yeah, that's right. I mean, the minds are not functioning properly. There are crooked things that can't be made straight, and then yet amongst all of that wreckage, God gives His Word, the Gospel, and truth to be able to to navigate that. And so we went back to the foundation to gain a biblical framework to interpret life, and that's what we did, creation and the fall. Um, So you're not wandering in this wasteland of of human madness, and that's, that's what you see around us, confusion, contradiction, chaos, um, you know, and what a wonderful time to, to live, to be a Christian. It might sound the opposite of what, what you would think, but because the Bible provides such a straightforward explanation of, of creation and where the problems come from, you're going to be the only person that's saying those kinds of things and, uh, and, and speaking truth. Uh, and the Lord's going to be able to, to use that. Um, and so while we looked at it from a biblical standpoint, we're going to look at it from a, from a cultural perspective. And it's based on the book titled The Strange New, New World. Um, 
hopefully it'll benefit you as well. This is how we're we're going to outline it. There we go. I'm going to do the introduction tonight, and uh, then you're going to have the the authority of of self that's coming up. Mark Hager's going to do that. Um, then the absence of morals. That's Tim Moshera. Then I'm going to come back along and do the adapt. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, absolutism of sex. How we went from from sex to politics. Um, the adaptability of identity. That is uh, Mike Lowry, and then Jacob Hunter is going to come. The uh, abnegation of freedoms. Then the assignment of the church. Uh, I'll be doing that. Then evangelism in this strange new world. And then the biblical process of, se- of change, self and, and others. And then we'll end with a panel discussion. And we'll probably do some Q&A as we, as we go along. Because I don't think these are going to last until you know, till 7, 7.15. So tonight is the introduction. I'm going to introduce the book. And I'm going to define a lot of terms. Um, things like self, expressive individualism, the sexual revolution, social imagery, and all of these things will be important for you to, to understand as you, as you go through, the, through these lessons. If you don't know what the, the terms mean, then you might get, get lost. Mark is then going to come along and talk about the the greatest, author, uh, greatest authority, which is within self. That's what the culture says. My inner feelings are the only higher power to which I must submit. Tim will come and then talk about how the culture's idea of human nature has no universal moral structure. So any outside moral or religious system placed on me is, is oppressive by its very nature. And then I'll come back and do how the, what the culture says I'm defined by my sexual desires. And so any restrictions on that must be eliminated or else I can't be myself. Um, Mike will address the culture's intuition that I have the sovereign power to create and shape my identity on my own terms and I fully expect the world around me to recognize and empower whatever identity I choose to create. And then Jacob will deal with, because my feelings and the preservation of my created identity are most important, then the freedoms of others may require certain restrictions in order to thwart any potential harm that could come upon me. And then I'll start the assignment of the church and you know what evangelism is. And, and then we'll wrap it up with that process to change. How do I change? How do you help others change? Um, so we'll lay out the problem and then give some biblical solutions to that. So the goal will be to explain how society turned from objective criteria found in some external source like the Bible. It's the way it used to be. You evaluated yourself, you evaluated life, you evaluated your desires, you evaluated what you were planning on doing in life based on something outside of you. Whether that was some uh, societal standard, this is what it means to be successful in life. I'm going to 
learn a trade and then I'm going to go work really hard to do that in order to you know, buy a white house in the picket fence or whatever. There was something outside of you. There was God. There was the Bible. There were morals. There were things that, that you, were, you reconciled yourself against. You evaluated yourself on the basis of these things out, outside of you. Um, but that's turned from an outward objective criteria to inward subjective authority in this ever-changing cauldron of human feelings. Now people don't compare themselves to something external, some criteria like that. They evaluate themselves based on their desires, based on how they feel. And now based on their feelings about passions and desires, like, like sex and, and other things. And then that turned toward uh, politics, and that's how politics became centered on, on sex. Ryan Anderson, in his foreword to the book, said you could summarize Truman's book as an account of how the person became a self and the self became sexualized and sex became politicized. And then in all of that, it's how people are answering the question, who am I? And their answer is, this is my identity. This is what I identify with. And of course, you can find on you know, Matt Walsh on YouTube and otherwise just some of the most bizarre things. I identify as a cat. I identify as a, as a person of color, even though I'm white. I mean... All kinds of things. How do people get to that place where they can look at you straight in the face and actually believe those things? That has changed dramatically. How someone would, would classify their identity. How would you identify yourself? I can remember in public school, one of the things that you were required to do, and I forget which class it was, was to identify yourself. What, would, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, who are you? What, what are your dreams? And you would have to get up in front of the class and, and describe that. And almost everybody there said something like, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a police officer. I want to be, a, you know, a lawyer or a doctor. And, you know, and a lot of times that had to do with, with their parents or, or, or where they, they, they lived. I mean, nobody at that point in time, you know, I was in the, you know, the 80s, nobody at that point in time said, I want to be you know, a woman, even though I'm a man, or I want to be, and you can fill in the blank, some of the things that you see in, in society. That's changed dramatically how people identify themselves, hence this strange new, new world. So that's the introduction, and let's get, let's get started here. Um, that's the cover of the book that you should have if you are planning on, on reading it. But Carl Truman is the author. He actually wrote two books. This is the larger version. One is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to, sexual Revol- the, road to the Sexual Revolution. Sounds like a, a wonderful read over a coffee and a muffin, doesn't it? Well, the book is over 400 pages long, and so you're going to be drinking multiple coffees and multiple muffins. And it's very technical. Um, it's not very accessible to the average, average reader. And so he wrote a second book 
And that second book is based on the based on the first one. And that one is this smaller and more friendly version called The Strange New World. I looked up just before service, and you can purchase the book for $16 on Amazon and a couple other, other places. It's not that hard to read, and I think it would be well worth your time uh, to, to, go, to go through it. Uh, let's start this way. According to an article in the Washington Post, was written on the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, it said collectively, communist states killed more than 100 million people in their reign of terror, which is more than all the other repressive regimes during this time, and that included from... Mao Zedong in China to Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union. Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn said the brief explanation that he gave for the reason behind all of the horrors of Soviet communism was men have forgotten God and that's why all this happened. That was his simple uh, diagnosis for the evils of Soviet communism. Men have forgotten God, and that's why all this happened. And there's a lot of parallelism with the West today, Truman says. We, too, have forgotten God. The good news is, the way in which people have forgotten God will lead us to diagnose the sickness and then identify a cure from from Scripture. Solzhenitsyn said, uh, went on to say, Today's world has reached a state which, if it had been described to preceding centuries, would have called forth the cry, This is the apocalypse. This is the end of the world. And yet we have grown used to this kind of world, and we even feel at home in it. And it feels the same today in a lot of ways. I mean, the world is becoming increasingly comfortable with perversity and accustomed to the distortions of fact, fact being presented as, as fiction and, and vice versa. The statement that's up on the screen, I am a woman trapped in a man's body encapsulates the madness of, of our society. I mean, that statement in and of itself two generations ago would have been laughed at. But today, society considers it something meaningful, something significant. Today, to even to reject this sentence is to be backwards, subject to irrational phobia. You're a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever other kind of phobe. Not to mention, they would say, you're harmful to others. You commit mental violence on someone. Terms like that. If you reject this statement, that I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, you're committing mental violence on someone else. And the sentence actually touches on the connection between the, the, um, the mind and the body. And it actually gives priority to emotions and convictions over biological realities. The biological reality is whatever you feel like, you are a man or you are a woman. 
It makes distinctions between gender and sex and consequently how a society then defines a man and a a woman. And this book examines the shifts that, that brought all that about in our society, that brought our society to embrace such fundamental changes as biological realities are now denied for feelings and for, for emotions. And much of the problem centers, not surprisingly, around the importance of self, right? Now we're back to where we were, we were over the summer with Genesis 3. The, the, if you want to cook down the, the, the human heart after the fall, it's with two little letters, me. I am the most important. Self is the most important thing. And this self will, will fully define in, in just a moment. But that's where it all centers. Modern man seeks to be first and foremost true to himself. I, I just have to be me, right? I have to speak my truth. Uh, well, but for me, and you'll hear people say that on a, on a regular basis, modern man seeks to be first and foremost true to himself, not true to God, not true to some, some concept of society, not what your parents were, but, but to himself. He doesn't seek to conform his thoughts or his feelings to some objective reality like science or facts, but, but the... The inner man's self becomes the source of truth. He reconciles his thoughts and his feelings to, to his own thoughts and feelings. And that's what is defined as expressive individualism. Individualism that expresses itself outwardly in, in all types of things, like orientation or identity or otherwise. It's where everyone seeks to give expression to their inner self. What is in me, I must express outwardly, and you must acknowledge that expression, and you must even approve and, and give, give support to, to that expression, rather than being bound by natural and supernatural law, or even society or, or com- community. The norm becomes our inner feelings, not transcendent truths, which is why it's such a wonderful thing to be a Christian. In a time like this, because you have transcendent truth. You have truth that pierces through all of that craziness. You have the truth. The Word of God discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. You might not understand how somebody can be so crazy in their thinking. You don't have to understand, even though we're trying to do that. In order to be effective by, uh, to God, you don't have to understand why they think that way. You have the tool that when it is spoken and rightly divided, it alone discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. It pierces all the way down to the core of who they are. And not only that, it can raise their dead spirits to life through the gospel. Yet this shift is even being felt in the church. It's led to a shift in where we, we look for answers about life. It's led to the self. It's led to a shift in the way that we, we do church um, that goes to the, uh, the woke church currently. Prior to that, the emerging church. Prior to that, the seeker-sensitive church. Let's, let's design church around seekers. You give people what they want. They'll come to church. We can tell them about Jesus. 
and then they'll they'll they, if they figure out Jesus is really a nice guy rather than a bad guy, then they'll pray the prayer and they'll accept Jesus. The problem with that is that's unbiblical anthropology because the Bible says they hate the light, they won't come to the light because their deeds are evil. They don't think Jesus is a good guy. Nothing you can ever say to them will convince them that Jesus is a good guy other than the gospel. So you neuter the very power, that the only power that you have in order to save them. And prior to the seeker-sensitive movement, it was Norman Vincent Peale and the positive thinking movement. And prior to him was Harry Emerson Fostick and the liberal movement that, that drove the, the rise of of fundamentalism, what are the fundamentals of the faith, and you can trace that all the way back to the garden, which is looking inside to inner feelings rather than transcendent truth. And you have to be careful because these cultural shifts leak into leak into the church. And one of the ways that's leaking in is it's directing believers away from theologians who preach how to conform yourself to God, to therapists who counsel on the importance of being true to yourself. Just find a church that is true to you. Whatever God's called you to do, whatever big dream that He's given you, you find a church that will fan that flame and let you fulfill that dream, whatever dream that is that God has God has given you. And I told the story the first time I ever heard John MacArthur say, and I was sitting at the Shepherds Conference, I don't know, almost 20 years ago. He was talking about the prayer of Jabez. You remember that book that was around the prayer of Jabez? You know, dream the dream and ask God to give you the dream and God will expand your coast. And he just looked and he said, can I tell you something? God could care less about your dream. God doesn't care about your dream. God cares about His sovereign plan, and you're, you're privileged to be part of that. So you're the means by which God will carry out His sovereign plan. So you're important from that standpoint, but stop thinking that you're dreaming dreams and coming up with, with something that you're trying to get God to cooperate with you to do. You need to surrender, you be a servant, and do what God has called you to do, which is to be faithful. Philip Reef said... The triumph of the therapeutic has moved society to be more sexualized by pushing individuals to be true to their inner sexual desires. And we'll talk about this shift, how it moves from self, okay? We're not looking outside. We're not looking at the Bible. We're not looking at something objective. We're not looking at societal norms. We're now looking inward. And now once I'm looking inward... Then I'm looking to my desires, and, and then I start looking to the sexual desires, the, the basis part of me. That's where I start looking. We'll talk about how that shift moved, moved along. What was once self-evident, Reef said, that a boy will grow up to be a man, a husband, and a father, now entails first a search to discover this inner truth about gender identity and sexual orientation, all based on emotions and feelings and desires far removed from nature and reason and ultimately from God's creative purposes. I mean, think about it. Where gender identity was once tied to biology, one's biological sex, as was sexual orientation... It's now tied to one's search for sexual authenticity. I just have to be authentic, authentic to me. 
And in the midst of all of that, politics has sought to create a world around that, a world free of criticism, free to follow one's desires, in particular one's sexual desires. And the affirmation of the sexual self is what drives much of the political agenda today. I mean, think about it. What was once called sex reassignment surgery is now called gender affirmation procedures. It's like um, we used to call it a, a graveyard. We used to call it a tombstone. And now we call it a memorial garden. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with calling it a memorial garden. But when you change terms, there's a reason that, that you're doing that. And yet in the midst of all that, the church is called to boldly teach truth and to intentionally live out that truth in, in countercultural ways, which is the purpose of this study. And when I say boldly teach truth, I'm, I mean including the gospel, which says we are all broken and sinful, and the gospel can transform you no matter who you are or what you are, whether you're a, a, a self-righteous a legalist, legal moralist, or, or whether you're, you're a drunkard and, a, and, a, and a, uh, an immoral man whatever it it might be. So chapter 1, Truman says, welcome to this strange new world that that you're living in. He said, we we have grown accustomed to fictional movies like Mary Poppins. You ever watch Mary Poppins? Or if you're a little bit older, uh, a movie called The Matrix, where there's some form of alternate reality. Like this is real and there's an alternate reality. Truman says our society now lives in a very confusing and disturbing world. Things that were once obviously virtuous now are criticized and and vilified. It feels like an alternate reality that you're living in. And this confusion surrounds not only the, the child who absorbs their surrounding culture, but also the parents who are now struggling to shepherd their children through these, these changes. I mean, what once was a loving response to a child struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria is now viewed as hateful and bigoted and even illegal in, in some ways. And this generational gap will be seen not only in the basic ideas of fashion and music, but in the attitudes now of the most basic aspects of human existence. Wasn't it wonderful when the generation gap just described your, your, your teenager liked rock music and you liked the hymns? It's not the, gener- the, the gender gap or generational gap any longer, I should say. The basic, most basic attitudes of thinking about human existence... Now feelings and thoughts and emotions are untethered. They're, the umbilical cord is cut from, from this objective reality. And the culture war is playing out in households of families around you and hearts and minds of, of the people you work with. And sadly, this is no longer an adult debate. This is not something that's, that only the, the spoiled uh, yuppie college elite are talking about at Berkeley or otherwise, but... But it's all the way down into grade schools in Bedford and Campbell County. 
It's something that's trickled down to the youngest of children. It now challenges you to think things like, are, are my views on the subject simply the fruit of my upbringing? I mean, didn't society once believe slavery was normal? Is that our same issue? I've heard people say that. Well, I mean, society once thought slavery was, was bad. Society will catch up. Society's behind the times. They'll catch up with homosexuality. It'll be just like slavery. Everybody will, everybody will embrace it and everybody will, will love it. I mean, have we not out, outlived and outgrown or grown beyond the limitations of traditional views on sex and marriage and gender? I mean, what is the big deal? I mean, have old traditional views outlived their, their usefulness? I mean, those are the questions that people are asking. You might not be asking those, but those are some of the questions that people are being confronted with, children are being confronted with. And Truman would, would argue that there is one common denominator which, which helps explain these changes to demonstrate that they're not as random as you might think but rather very explicable. You can explain what's going on, in the, and it's in the light of the notion of self. The idea of, of self is connected to three concepts in, in our study in the book. Expressive individualism, the sexual revolution, and social imagery. And I'm going to define those. I understand those are big terms, so I'm going to explain them. In order to, for the rest of the lesson to make sense, I, I need to define these terms and and give you a proper understanding. Truman refers to self when he's talking about self. He refers to the, to the deeper notion of where the real me is, it, it is found. How that shapes my view of life and, and what the fulfillment or happiness of the real me consists. I'm going to be happy if I find my, myself. Modern self assumes the authority of, of inner feelings. It sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. So the modern self says your, your feelings are valid. It doesn't matter what those feelings are. They come from you. They come from inside of you. Because they come from inside of you, then you matter. Your feelings matter. And so the, the authority of those inner feelings and that authenticity is defined by, by the ability then to give expression to those feelings. I feel like a man even though I'm a woman, then that, those feelings are authoritative and you should be able to express that. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior, which is why the culture war is taking place. Because you're not affirming a man who says they are a woman. You're saying, no, you're, you're a man. It's biology. Or you're saying something else that has to do with, with, with objective, scientific, biology, whatever it, whatever it might be, or scripture. Such a self is defined by what's called expressive individualism. That term was, was coined by 
man named Robert Bella, who defined expressive individualism as follows. Expressive individualism. Now, just, just think about the terms. Individualism, a focus on me, a focus on an individual, and it's expressive. So not just individuals. I mean, there, you are an individual before God. You have individual soul liberty. So you stand or fall before the Lord. You alone will stand before the Lord. You must choose whether you'll follow God or not. You are an individual. And the Bible doesn't deny that. You as an individual are created in the image of God. So being an individual is not the problem. It's individualism. It's turning inward. That now you are, are elevated above what the Bible says that you are. And you get to express that individualism. So expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling, and intuition that that should unfold and should be expressed if individuality is to be realized. I am unfulfilled. I am not me. I'm not authentic. Those are the types of terms that that you hear in, in society. Philosopher Charles Taylor added this to expressive individualism. It says, The culture of authenticity is one where each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that is important to find and then live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a, with a model imposed on us from outside by society or a previous generation or religious or political authority. So Charles Taylor adds something else to that. It's obvious if, if individualism, and this is the authority, and now I get to express that, and I'm, I'm, as I'm expressing that, I'm expressing that in community. I'm expressing that around other people. I have to create now this culture of authenticity where I am I'm not surrendering or conforming with any model outside. I mean, if the source is inside, if the truth is inside, then, then I cannot conform to anything outside. And that's the enemy. Whether it's a previous generation or religious or political authority. The rebellious nature of, of society. Rebelling, rebelling against law. Rebelling against biology. Rebelling against church. Rebelling against parents. And knowing this... The modern self is, is the one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly according to one's inward feelings. And given these parameters, man should not only feel free to perform life, however he or she chooses, but he is encouraged to do so and any criticism is, is unwelcomed. Of course... As I said, individualism is not bad in and of itself, coupled with biblical anthropology. But divorced of that, it's monstrous. And you can see how this new source of authority and celebrated expression, expression of individualism, has worked itself out in the sexual revolution. I mean, the broader implications of expressive individualism is reflected in the, in the priority that 
the LGBTQ plus movement places on sexual desire and inner feelings and personal identity. That's what it's all about. Expressive individualism is the backdrop to what is known as the, the sexual revolution. And what we mean by the sexual revolution is the, the movement that begins with the changes in sexual morality since the 1960s. This would include the expansion of the range of socially accepted sexual behavior. I mean, there used to be behavior that was not accepted by society. Hence the term, in the closet. And now it's not out of the closet. Now it's everyone must, must affirm this. Truman would suggest that the, the sexual revolution is not so much an expansion of approved behavior, but a, but a celebration of such uh, transformation. Sexual revolution is not expanding the, the moral code. Get us synced up here. Yeah. The sexual revolution is not, not expanding the moral code. It's the idea of removing the code altogether. I mean, that's where you're at today. And to take it one step further, such moral codes are, are viewed as a as a sign of moral deficiency. You're behind the times. You're deficient morally if you don't, you don't embrace this. If, if the individual's inner identity is defined by sexual de- desire, our most base desires, then he or she must be allowed to act out that desire in order to be an authentic person. The sexual act in and of itself has no intrinsic moral significance. And now you're back to the book of Colossians. You know, food for the body, food for the stomach. It doesn't matter what I do in my physical body. That's irrelevant. So the sexual act in and of itself has no, no intrinsic power as long as there's consent. Providing that's the moral framework. Somebody consents to it. I'm clicking. There we go. The last term that Truman defines for us in, in the first chapter is the term of what's called social imagery. Again, just think about the term. Think about where we've been, what we've talked about so far. With this term, he seeks to answer the question, why do people think the way that they do? I mean, yes, there's thinkers such as Rousseau and, and Michel Foucault who have helped put theory to words, but they're not the, the in and of themselves responsible for this societal shift. It's not that, that a bunch of teenagers started reading French philosophers and all of a sudden they say, ah, the sexual revolution. Their thinking captures what Charles Taylor called social imagery meaning they gave words to what people were feeling. These philosophers are writing about what people are, are feeling. Charles Taylor calls the social imagery, I, I speak of, of, of imagery 
because I'm talking about the way ordinary people imagine their social surroundings. And this is often not expressed in theoretical terms. It's carried in images and stories and legends. But it's also the case that, that the theory is... Well, there we go. The theory is often possessed by a small minority... Whereas what is interesting in the social imagery is that it is shared by a large group of people, if not the whole society, which leads to the third difference. The social imagery is that common understanding which makes possible common practices and a widely shared sense of legitimacy. Translated, the way we see the world is not driven by rational arguments as much as as it is intuitive. And given the fallen nature of man, one can easily understand where human intuitiveness leads. If you just want to cook it down, where do you think it's going to go if you start looking inward for the answers? (laughs) Of course it's going to go down this road. And of course then with a society people living under the cosmos, living under the prince of the power of the air, and they're doing this collectively, and they're imagining collectively what what society is supposed to look like, then that's going to come out in all of the forms that you see, see today, from teaching to otherwise. The sexual revolution is much more than a product of mere thinkers, is what Truman argues. The reason society thinks about sex the way that it does is the result of a confluence of a host of factors. He said the pill made it cheap and easy to separate sex from procreation. In short, it made sex as recreation a far more practical option than it had been before. The advent of Playboy and cosmopolitan and mainstream culture presented promiscuity as cool and attractive, an attractive lifestyle for men and women alike. The rise of no-fault divorce reduced marriage to a sentimental bond. The rhetoric of feminism asserted a woman's control over their own bodies and sexuality. The Internet massively expanded the accessibility of pornography And as more people used it, the social stigma that it traditionally carried was diminished. And I can remember you only got it in in a gas station, and you had to ask for it. Not that I ever did. And it was in a brown paper wrapper back there, and it was a magazine. Soap operas and sitcoms, even commercials, present sex as a cost-free pastime. And the list goes on. But the picture is clear. A complex set of factors from philosophy to technology to pop culture shape the way we intuitively think about sex. And what we're witnessing and experiencing today through the sexual revolution is actually the rise of self. And as we understand this, we know we'll not find the answers in new laws or regulations, but in the Word of God. I mean, who better to speak on the subject of man's inner self than the one who created man (laughs) and redeemed him from this fallen world or makes that possible. 
And that's what's in store. Mark Hager will come along in section two and talk about the authority of self. Cultural intuition. My greatest authority is within myself. My inner feelings are the only higher power which I must submit. And we'll drill down into all of those concepts that we, we talked about tonight. Um, if there's one way that I see this, this creeping into the church, it's, it's the idea of, um, of integrating therapy with theology or what you would call Christian psychiatry, which is an oxymoron. The idea that you take godless scientists that profess that they are godless and that they have added to the constitution of a human being, that there's a subconscious and an id and an ego actually evaluating things that, that are not organic, they're not testable, they're not treatable, it's, it, it's something in your mind. It's, it's, it's behavioral. That's why it's called behavioral medicine. And so it, it's, it, it's, it's not organic in and of itself. There, you, according to Scripture, are material. There's an organic part of you, and then there's an immaterial part of you. That immaterial part of you is your mind, your will, your emotions, your spirit. And that's the way the Creator has designed you. You have a physical body. Flesh and blood will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's also another part of you that's not flesh and blood. It's not organic. It's your spirit, which was dead in trespasses and sins and now made alive. Your, your mind is a natural mind versus a, versus a spiritual mind. And psychiatry comes along and says there's a third part of you and defines for you how to fix the problems. It's it's not psychology. Psychology is the study of those things, the study of behaviors. You have to be careful there as well. But if you observe human behavior over a period of time, a long period of time, and categorize those things in behaviors, that's, that, that, that's doable. You watch a human being long enough, you'll see, oh, these behaviors, and they fit in, in these categories. The problem comes when you start interpreting where those behaviors come from, why those behaviors are happening, and then set out a treatment plan to fix those behaviors that are outside of Scripture. So if there's one thing that I could say to you as you're talking about the sexual revolution and all of these things and the shifts turning inward and the sexualizing of, of self, it's trust the sufficiency of Scripture. The Creator knows how to fix people. The Creator is the one that made People. So be careful integrating things from the world and not even realizing that those are things that are, that are, that are contrary to Scripture. They're unorthodox. And, and you, you kind of attach them to something and you don't even understand that, that they can't cohabitate uh, together. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we, uh, we, move, we move along. That's all I have for you tonight. Any, uh, it's good, praise the Lord. Any thoughts, questions? I mean, it's kind of an introduction, so I don't know that there was a lot of substance there, and I might answer if you ask a question, well, that's coming in lesson two, or that's, you know, down the, down the line. Yes, sir, Peter.
Yeah, the source. The source is is godless evolution. Um, human beings are animals. I mean, they, they have a completely different view of the constitution of a of a human being. Um, whenever the Bible gives a very clear definition of organic and inorganic, um, and we praise God for medicine, praise God for drugs and all the other things that treat those organic components and issues that are there. God gave man the ability to, you know, to, to learn and, and apply those, those things. It's when you get in the immaterial world, something that's not testable, something that's not treatable, or the tests that are applied there are based on evolutionary thought or or the concepts of, of a man or, or, or a woman, concepts of a human being that have, that have no root or basis whatsoever in Scripture. In fact, they contradict Scripture. That's, that's where you get in the, the, the problem. That's oh, good. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what's helpful about the title, The Strange New World. I think we have moved into, clearly, another, another phase of Romans 1. And I think this is judgment. I don't think that you can, I mean, we can go back to, when was it? Prayer out of school or, or what? I don't know when. But you, you can't thumb your nose in God's face as a society and, and write sin into your laws and promote things that are that are anti-God and harm children and women and other human beings and expect God to sit back and do nothing about it. I just pray on a regular basis, Lord, remember your people are still here. You know, they're uh, we we're, we're here. The church is you know is is here, and he, He's never answered me. Uh, he's already told me what to do to be a witness and you know and, and otherwise. But but that's the the third stage in Romans one where it, you're you know you're turned over to a broken mind which is the anti-scientific, anti-logic. I mean, how illogical is it that you deny biological sex? You know? So you've, you've moved into that, and it's a broken thinking. So there's a spiritual reason that that's happening. What Truman tries to do is, is, is show you how they built the house of cards, which is why we started with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Like, this is the fundamental reason. This is the truth, and this is what's going on. And this is how human beings are building their sexual tower of Babel. And yeah, the Lord's going to bring it, you know, crashing down. He's going to give them, I mean, the, the judgment in Romans 1, Romans 1, He gives them what they want. He turns them over to their own desires and they will bear the consequences of, of those. But now it's not on an individual scale, it's on a societal scale. And that, that, that's, that's where we're at, you know, right now. Yeah. Yes, sir.
Yeah, I think the danger right now is the or the why it's why it's spreading. You know, and ultimately, look, it's just a, it's just a manifestation of all of our depravity. I mean, we all. Um, you heard me use the analogy before the of the yeast in the dough. We all have the same yeast in the dough. Our environment does affect though how it how it manifests, and that yeast can manifest in all different kinds of ways. You know, I mean, somebody might not be raised in an environment or. You know, or, or tempted with drinking, or what, or whatever it, whatever it might be. But, but your environment, God created structures in society. He created the family. He created law. He created government. He created the church, and, and he, he he did that as a common grace. It's to restrain sin. None of those things save an individual. Um, and what's shifted now, though, is like you're saying. I was also raised in public school. These things were there. I mean, they're described in Scripture. Bestiality is in Scripture. I mean, you know, fornications in Scripture, all the way back to the time of, of Abraham. So there's nothing new, but it was it, it, society kept kept it restrained to a certain degree. It, there, there was a societal pressure that that was there. There were laws that 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 were there, and and now those those things are are, are relaxing and they're, they're 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 gone. And so. The, the human heart is manifesting, or to again use the analogy of the yeast in the dough, it's being placed on the porch banister in the 90 degree heat versus a dough ball in the refrigerator. Um, so it, it, it is a loving thing to, to restrain sin and act just laws, help do that. Um, that doesn't change the heart, but it does help restrain it, and those restraints are, are gone um, more and more and more. So it's just it, the water's going to run to the you know to the highest level, and then it'll the pressure of the water will push, and it'll push it even even farther until the house of cards falls. You know, in 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 some ways, some way. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It is. Could be. You guys may not have heard what he said. He says the parallels of the book of Judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own in their own eyes, and that's that that's true. So that's good. Yes. 
Yeah, we'll actually talk about uh, the thinking of Karl Marx and uh, Wilhelm Reich and others, how some of that thinking is, is playing out in, you know, in, in the sexual revolution and, and otherwise. So, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Sure. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, it's 611, so I will let you go. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your truth. And uh, I pray you'll bless this study. It will help us to understand and, um, and stand on truth. And we're so thankful that we know it. We don't know it because we're smarter than anybody else. It's your grace. All truth is spiritually discerned. And you've been very merciful to us. Help us not waste that. Help us to be faithful um, with the truth and the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.